1984 race was the beginning of a new era. The first IndyCar race at Long Beach was also the first race of the year, and veteran Mario Andretti dominated in his ninth appearance at Long Beach, leading the entire race and securing his second Long Beach victory. And now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire, with your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio Welcome to Dinner with Racers. I'm Ryan Eversley. I'm Sean Heckman. And we just got done with a crazy season of all sorts of different adventures. We've been to Mexico. We've been to Long Beach. We've been to Indiana. But when I say Long Beach, I mean we went to Long Beach. Sean spent probably like 14 days straight down there. More than that. Yeah. (laughs) And one of the people that you have to know if you know about the Long Beach Grand Prix is the president and CEO of the event, Jim McCallion. So uh, if you you go on to uh, Motor Trend Plus or Motor Trend on YouTube, you can watch our whole Long Beach episode. On Motor Trend Plus, it is called Long Beach Part (laughs) 1. If you go to YouTube, I don't know what they called it. Aptly called. Aptly called. Something something not not at all what we asked them to call it. (laughs) But regardless, this is one of these behind-the-scenes podcast episodes where we do more extended versions of interviews that you'll see on our video series, including Jim McCallion. Jim McCallion is the president and CEO of what we call the Acura Grand Prix of Long Beach. They, there's a whole real title for the company, but he's the Long Beach guy. And he is a longtime fixture of the sport. Ryan, you've been on the track with him, right? <laughs> yeah, I've raced against Jim before at Daytona and a couple other sports car races. He's yep. uh, no stranger to being out there in the pro ranks and IMSA and Grand Am and the Rolex Series days. But some of the stories you're going to hear Jim talking about, like we always do in motorsports, we find somebody that started with a con. So are you saying that Jim McCallion and that group started this race on a con? That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, another story that we hear a lot about on Dinner with Racers, huh. people dealing with Robbie Gordon. So you're saying Jim McCallion has to deal a lot with Robbie Gordon? He's got a, he's got Robbie Gordon stories, and that's always a good thing. Interesting. And because he's in the city of Long Beach, you know what he also knows about? He knows what sailors like. He talks a little bit about what sailors like, and we try to really get him to talk about it, but he's still a <laughs> traditional person who does not want to talk about what we want to talk about. Now, getting to Long Beach from your house isn't too bad, No, but we were still able to get there because we had help from one of our good buddies. Mr. Rene Rast. Rene Rast. That's right. Thanks, Rene Rast. I don't know which one of you did that, but please roll down the window. Rene was able to drive us down there in my Acura MDX, which is sitting on Continental Tires. Continental Tires. That's right. Huh. Pretty cool. Were they at Long Beach? They they were one time. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, on Robbie Gordon's trucks. They were. That's right. Can you do the thing? Yeah, Continental Tire. Cross contact. LBC. Jim McAlien. Take it away. All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. So 1973, there's this English travel agent by the name of Chris Pook who has this idea, and somehow you get sorted into this. How does all of this work? Well, first of all, you have to understand what the climate and the situation was in Long Beach at that time, all right? Long Beach always had a tendency to strive for big events that would mark them as a sophisticated, progressive, dynamic city. Even in the 70s. And and as a result of that, they engaged in a variety of different special events 
some successful, some not so successful, but the Miss Universe pageant was here for a number of years, way back when it carried a certain amount of cachet with it. That was followed, but that went away, and then that was followed by the acquisition of the Queen Mary. So the Queen Mary came in in 68 and went you know, over to the, the other side, if you would, on the other side of Rainbow Harbor, and that was going to be the, 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 the magnet to draw people and notoriety and prestige for the city. Well, that started to go away when, when people began to realize, one, the cost. I, mean, I think they required it for like $2 million. And then they were required to put about $100 million in. Yeah. To, to like yeah. restore and keep just it around. Just yeah. to make it as a viable hotel and, and reinforce <laughs> right. everything. So that, you know, that was a Floated. big expenditure. So now all of a sudden the public is looking going, wow, you know, uh, what's the ROI on that deal? <laughs> so then Ballet racing. Yeah. Chrissy come along with the idea that why don't we look at doing an international street race a la Monaco, uh, which would bring some of the attributes that – could be assigned to a special event, but we could do it in a successful manner. Keep in mind that in 1974-75, when the concept was first being discussed, there were no street races in America. Right. Okay. Yeah. None. The no Detroit, was, no Vegas, no anything. They're nothing. Yeah. The reason was, if you remember, historically, way back when, they had some fatalities associated with Watkins Glen's road race. And after that, None of those none of those type of events were insurable. So there was no way you were going to conduct those in a modern city that was going to require some assurance about safety and insurance and so all of the things. So even in the 70s, the lawyers and insurance screwed it up. Exactly. Okay. So that's, that's where we were at. So, one, some of the hurdles that needed to be overcome was, one, selling the concept to the city that it could, in fact, accomplish a number of these goals which they were anxious to do and had attempted to do in the past. And the other thing was, how do you do it so that we, the city who hosts this event, can be assured that it's going to be done safely, it's going to be done in a manner that doesn't impact negatively on the downtown area, and two, and, and three, produces the effects that you claim you're going to be able to do. So that was that was the challenge to... to a multitude of different uh, fact, facets there, okay? Whether it was the city itself or talking to the state commissioner about authorization to do it, whether it was going out raising money, because we basically went out and sold stock on the original, the original offering. We went out and sold uh, $600,000 worth of stock to our friends, you know, to all of us, right? And as a consequence of that, we, we had originally filed for a million dollars, and it was called, in those days, it was called an intrastate offering, intrastate. It had to be people in California. They had to have a certain level of income, so they were like qualified investors, and that's, I think, even what they call it today. And they had to have a, quote, interest in motor racing, unquote. Those were the criteria. So we went out to raise a million dollars, fell short of that, skepticism we'd love to see one happen mm -hmm. but why don't you go run one and then <laughs> right we'll, yeah we'll Show see first. where it goes yeah so we took six hundred thousand, went back and convinced the state commissioner that you know we can make it work at that we don't need to hit that million dollar mark right now and took that money and built the safety system safety system had to be designed 
so that it would fit into the criteria that could be insurable as far as a as, as far as a circuit concerned. You couldn't just take, for example, K Rail, or just take you know they've got K Rail all over, just put it on the circuit. Mm-hmm. Well, K-Rail doesn't work because it doesn't have a flat edge. Right. Okay. It takes the car and rolls it up and then rolls it right back into everything else is going. You want a flat edge, dissipates the energy and more importantly, keeps the car contained. Okay. So we went to a gentleman named Dr. Peter Talbot out of San Francisco, uh, the uh, California Sports Car Club up there. And he designed the system that still exists today. Flat edge on one side, tapered on the other side. And then uh, it was enhanced so that it could accommodate the poles, right. the fence, and the cable. All critical factors in terms of providing the, the, the level of security and safety that the insurance guys were looking for, the city was looking for, the sanctioning bodies were looking for, everybody. So that was our, that was our first real challenge, mm-hmm. raising the money, getting the system, and then putting it in place. And all that happened in the summer of 1975. Summer. Wow. Okay. So we were, what we were doing is, we were, it was a very small group. There was only four or, four or five of us. Okay. And we had a little office downtown yeah. up, on the, up on the 600, top of the 600 building in the penthouse up there. Hmm. And we were doing, you know, all of the different functions are spread out amongst everybody. We all did virtually everything. Okay. We put that race on in September 28, 1975. It was a Formula 5000 race. Mm-hmm. Formula 5000 was required because the Formula 1 wouldn't come to a circuit in those days until there had been some kind of a test race run. Like a run. concept, yeah and, yeah. and for us, by the way, if you ever have a chance to go back and look at the entry list for the Formula 5000 race at Long Beach in 1975, it is awesome. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people really appreciated the star power that was there. I mean, Mario Andretti was there. Brian Redman was there. David Hobbs. I mean, it was because Formula 5000 in those days was a pretty spectacular series. Yeah. It was, yeah. We, it we was don't have you know, now. the sort of the road racing version of Indy cars in those days. So right. it was, it was pretty spectacular. So we put that race on Formula 1000. We had a couple other secondary races and nice sunny day. We went out and got television with CBS so CBS came in, they, they broadcast it on a week-delayed basis, but that was really critical because the criteria that we used in order to justify the city giving us those streets was, one, economic impact, two, the visibility that came about because the race was going to be televised. And keep in mind, when you televise a street race, it's different than a, a permanent circuit and certainly different than if you're doing a stadium event because a stadium event you guys are in production business. It focuses in on the playing field, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So where's the playing field for a street race? Oh, giant it's a huge part of land, yeah, yeah. And the backdrop, which you can't miss because you're focusing on cars going down Shoreline Drive. And what do you see in the background? Rainbow Harbor, the Port of Long Beach, the Queen Mary. You turn it around the other way for when they were going up on Ocean Boulevard, which we were in those days. And you got the skyline of the city. Now, now, in those days, that, quote, picturesque view was barren sand right, right. out on Shoreline Drive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when you flipped it over the other way and you looked at the skyline of Long Beach, it was 
flop houses and X-rated motor th- uh, uh, movie theaters on Ocean Boulevard. Literally, I mean, we got pictures of it. In fact, there's an old story which is true that w- before the uh, Formula One race back in '77, I think it was, we went and covered up the marquee on the th- the movie theater, the XXX rated movie theater. That was right at the start-finish line on Ocean Boulevard so that it wouldn't appear on television. <laughs> True story. True story. So you literally had to That's drape it. it over because... Exactly. Because nobody wanted to see that as a, a sort of epitomizing what... Yeah. You know, this is what Long Beach is about. Right. But I, I say Maybe. that because that was the genesis behind all of the growth and the development. All the things that have taken place in 75... That hadn't even started yet. Right, And right, it took right. a number of years. This world-class race took place, or started with taking a right turn around bodacious tatas. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, we when we came down and, and, and did the old loop, we went up on Ocean Boulevard and came around, which added a, you know, a certain amount of flair, even though there was nothing on Ocean Boulevard you wanted to look at. And it, and it, wasn't, it wasn't until Ocean Boulevard uh, began a real strong development phase that we took we took the racetrack off of ocean and brought it down on on seaside way and we did that one because we knew that the complaints and all of the logistical issues that would arise when you got a renaissance you got a west end at the time it was actually sheraton now it's west end but all those hotels and the breaker was there uh, so we took that moved it down moved the pits over on shoreline drive but that happened in 81 82 ish okay what happened in the interim there was the beginning was was really tough, really tough. We got through the '75 race and we turned around and did another form. We did the Formula One race in '76 in March 28th, which, ironically enough, nobody around here remembered that until <laughs> until they were reminded of the fact that this year, with the sequence that we have doing a race in September, oh my God, can you do another race in back in, in April? I said, man. We did it back in 75 when we had no money. Right. And right. we had a staff of five people. And yeah. we turned around and ran a Formula One race. And, and, and everything is nothing. your first time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So don't worry about it. It's going to happen. It'll be okay. fine. Yeah. But, but when we came out of that, that Formula One, and then Bernie was here, and there were some big numbers involved in those days. Uh, and we didn't have Toyota as a, as a title sponsor yet. Toyota was just an automotive sponsor. So we got through the 76 race, and then we had a year to the 77 race. And that's when it really got tough. 77 was our toughest year by far. We had the, the mechanics of running the race down, but the resources had just, you know, it, it didn't span that period of time. Keep in mind that when you're running a special event, the advantage you have is most of the revenue is paid in advance, and the, and the, the uh, invoices and for expenses are coming in post-race right but when you get down into may june july and august it gets it got really dry yeah so 77 was our toughest year just from a financial standpoint right you're we still were going off of that initial investment you know we were going around yeah and and so we had a board here we were going around making <laughs> subsequent donations and and uh, yeah. contributions to how you know how were we going to get through this phase? Bernie came out in 77. We didn't have the money to pay him. Oh, wow. Made a deal with him. We'd pay him so much, and then we'd pay him afterwards. Right. He was good about it. Yeah. Uh, he was here, and he you know, he recognized the fact that it would have been a black eye for anybody mm-hmm. to say, yeah. oh, 
Mm-hmm. And he's probably saw the value of the See market. Yeah, yeah, market, Southern yeah. California, F1 back then. And so we worked with him. I remember, you know, there's some famous stories about, you know, on Friday morning, Friday morning, before the cars went out, we had a meeting. We had a meeting with the board, collected money from all of us. Oh, wow. <laughs> like everybody's like pulling their wallets. Like, like passing like, around the collection oh, tray. Yeah, yeah, right. there, there was yeah. an old saying for a while. I, I hate to go to board meetings because you know, every time I do <laughs> I end up getting hit up for some more money. So, and it was true. And it was right. true. Right. But we got through '77, and that was the year that Mario won, and that changed the complexity of our whole entire operation. Suddenly, there was a perception that this is a big time event. When Mario Andretti wins a Formula One race in Long Beach, that sort of solidified our position in terms of the racing hierarchy and validating the concept of running a street race in America, okay? So those things all sort of came together. And starting in 78, we still incurred some smaller losses, but they weren't, you know, in those days, you know, seven-figure loss was huge. Yeah, yeah right, wipe you out. And now, I mean, in those days. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, now, now that we, everybody yeah, here knows. Yeah, 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 I mean, I've everybody lost a million dollars, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Right. You know. and, then, and then as time went along, we started to attract more sponsors, which is key. You know, Citibank came on board uh, uh, in 78 and 79. Uh, we had uh, additional sponsors. And then in 80, Toyota came on board as a title sponsor. And that also was one of those tent poles, one of those milestones that say, you know what, if Toyota's invested, then I can go to the Valvolines, I can go to the the uh, the, the various uh, uh, beverage companies and others and sell the idea that this is a long-term commitment, right. this is something that's going to last. So you, and landed a, do. you landed a big title sponsor and then you got Valvoline. Yeah. Yep. Do the same thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so and, and, you know, at that time we had Bridgestone. It's a tire company. Mm-hmm. I know that's not part of your sponsor base. <laughs> How dare you, sir? I mean, it's enough that you got Acura. We'll take Acura, right? Can't win them all. <laughs> There's a whole other story behind that. But anyway, so so it was. So as time progressed and as the event became more popular, and when you get into the '80s, you know, we were drawing we were drawing huge crowds here, over two hundred thousand people. There's. There are some pictures. In fact, there's some down. I don't know if you caught them. There's some down in the marketing department of those grandstands that were down there toward where turn just before you got to turn one. Keeping in mind that turn one was a right-hander, not a left-hander. But when the Ferrari Club came down there, they took they brought six thousand people. The Ferrari Club sat in one grandstand with their red hats on. Six thousand. We had over two hundred thousand people for Formula One. You know, and. And in those days, that was just toward the end of, of Formula One at Watkins Glen. And it was before the start of additional Formula One races here, Las Vegas, Detroit. If you remember, they ran an aborted temp in Phoenix. It ran 1984. They ran one in uh, Dallas, Texas, some of which we had some involvement with, um, some of which didn't. But, uh, but the concept was starting to catch on. And what was the concept? The concept was a lot of city leaders looked to us and said, wow. Okay, all those deliverables you guys were talking about, when my constituents or my uh, management team look up and see, there's Long Beach, April, look at the backdrop, look at the beauty. And by then, some of the elements that you see now were beginning to come into place. Shoreline Village had, had been developed. More importantly, it, 
Aram Pritzker of the Pritzker family, Pritzker's own Hyatt Hotel chain, amongst a lot of other things, was here in 1982. And, and, and Aram Pritzker said, having we took him, he gave him a pace car ride, and he was here for the duration of the race, said, if this city can host an event like this with 200,000 plus people here, then it deserves our attention in terms of having a presence here. And that was the genesis behind the appearance of what is now the Hyatt Regency, which was the very first major hotel development, long before they in appeared life. up on, uh, yeah. The, the only hotel that was in downtown was across the water uh, where the Maya is now. It was called the Hilton. Other than that, there was nothing here. So if the so, race was a dud, there's a good chance that, you know. A lot of this, now, now I've always said, we don't take all the credit for what's happened downtown. There's a lot of uh, uh, people who have been uh, a part of that uh, process. But you have to think that the ability to showcase the assets of the city at least once a year has had an instrumental effect in terms of terms of what's happened. So, so that's where, you know, so as time went along and you began to see this development and we, you know, we... In 82, 83, we ran Formula One here. And then in 83, Bernie came back to us and said, I need more money to come back in 84 because our contract was up. And at the time, he was looking at, at a sanction fee of about $2.5 million, mm. which not chump change even right. you know now, right. but let alone yeah. those days. Back then, for sure. And that was That was our challenge, okay? And we and not didn't, in revenue share or anything like just straight up. You write us a check. And and the, and and the challenge we had, honestly, was we were putting over two hundred thousand people in here. Never had rain on any of any Sunday. In fact, virtually any of the race days had major sponsorship with Toyota and a lot of ancillary sponsors, and we weren't making any money. Ah, yeah. I mean, minuscule amount. Mm -hmm. And so to scratch you know, a two million dollar check. On top of that, well, yeah, but yeah. It, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't two and a half on top, but it was it went from like one point seven five up right. to two and a half, so it was right. another so, three quarters of a million. If you're just barely breaking even, and this, you know, and quite frankly, there was a fairly astute city manager in there in those days, John Deaver. You know, and we were talking to him about where the race was going on, and you know, he he, he sort of looked at it and said, "Guys, you're doing you're doing all of that, and you're not realizing anything measurable." In terms of financial success, so you got to re—you sort of got to rethink. Yeah, change where your business model or something. What yeah. are you going to do? Because, yeah. as we all said, one rainy day, bingo. You know, you're right back where you were in '77. Right. I don't want to be there anymore. Been there. <laughs> don't want to be back. So, that was was sort of the genesis behind looking at Bernie and Chris and I. We flew to New York, met with Bernie, had dinner with him, and and told him, you know, the numbers just don't work. And he was pretty adamant he, that was what he was looking for. And so... Uh, now, at the same time, like you had said, street races now, seeing the success of Long Beach, start popping up in the U.S. So now there becomes options in Detroit, options yep. in Las Vegas. Yep. Um, you know, it's, he, it's, it's weird when you start the foundational event and yeah. then a bunch of other ones start popping well, up left and right. But, you know... Success has many fathers, right? Yes, Isn't that the way yes, it always works? Yeah. 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 So Invitation we, is the finest form yeah, of flattery. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Same way. So Have you had coffee with Kyle? Huh? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, so it was a consequence of that, that on that same trip, we called uh, 
to IndyCar and asked them, with, you know, what the situation was like and whether there was a chance to put something together. And after some discussions, uh, not, not too long, because we were obviously were looking at a 1984 race and we had to have some verification of where we we're going to be at. Right. And so we switched to IndyCar. 1984, they came here for the first time. Mario won again, which is a hell of a good start. But the backstory to that was our sanction fee in those days was $600,000. So we actually reduced our expense and and understood there was going to be a challenge. You know, does it work for our sponsors? Does it work in for terms our of fans? The new series and the different profile changes and all does that. Does it work yeah. for our fans too? You know, so we anticipated a, a, a bit of a dilution, which there was. But then having Mario come back and win that first race was really another one of those real critical things because now suddenly people were looking at the viability of it and going, so what's the difference, really? Well, we went through the 80s and the 90s, mm-hmm. success with, uh, you know, with a number of large teams. That mm-hmm. was the days when, you know, Target was here, right. Sonardi was here, sure. Montoya was here, Allinger Jr., won six times here Mario's won four times here Tracy four times you Mm -hmm. know so it built a certain historical background to get to this then we get to the 90s and everybody knows what happened when he got to the 90s was (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) the the bifurcation as they say (laughs) off it went yep so we went through that and there were some adjustments he made I mean Toyota was involved in the series and then all of a sudden they were on the other side honda on the other side penske on the other side ganassi was one of the first ones to go over and run in the in the 500 when it was supposed to be you know exclusively top 25 were involved with the with the indy irl in those days Yeah. yeah so we went through that and uh and change of ownership our company originally, like I say, we went public in '96. In '98, we were bought by Dover Motorsports, mm-hmm. who obviously run the the Dover race. And at the time, we're in the process of developing Nashville, the Super Speedway. Yeah. In uh, in 2005, sort of toward the end of when this whole battle between IRL and <laughs> and, and, and Cart yeah, and yeah. you know Champ, and then it turned into Champ Car, and where are we going to go with the series? And obviously, Long Beach was a was a target for for both sides. One wanted to keep it, and one wanted to obtain it. Right. And then, as you said, in in '08, why the death knell told, and uh, you know everything evolved into into one, which is now the you know the Indy Racing uh, Series. And we switched over. Actually, we ran the last we ran the last Champ Car race here in '09 in April, and that was that was it. From then on. Everything shifted over. That was a challenging time, uh, just because of the duality. And you know, well, is that the same cars that run? No, it's similar. And, <laughs> yeah, they look the uh, same, but they're kind of different. Yeah, and yeah. the drivers, <laughs> where are they? Where, where are they running at? Yeah. I, do I see? You know, I mean, it, it was a mess. And sponsors, quite frankly, you know, had the challenge of trying to sort it all right. out. And I mean, you guys go out and solicit sponsorship right Mm -hmm. when there's confusion in the marketplace it it it, it, it's so hard to overcome that Mm -hmm. and if if there's confusion at your level 
when you're presenting it. You can imagine how it's heightened when it gets yeah. way upstairs and somebody looks at it and goes, so what are, yeah. why are we doing this? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right, right. You know, explain to me again. Yeah. You yeah. know, There's two groups and they're <laughs> fighting and and some have the Indy 500s. You know, you know, yeah. It goes nowhere. Why, why, would, why do I want to do that? Right. So once there was clarity with regard to where they were going, that was a big assistant to us in terms of and that's 2010 virtually uh you know on down the road mm-hmm. and so we started to really started to accelerate then toyota got to the point where they announced that they were going to plano uh which was a significant development for mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. they were with us 44 year, uh, 43 years mm-hmm. 40 years as a title sponsor right so when that announcement first came out we had a long-term deal which we generally did uh, it didn't affect us immediately but the problem was is that the corporate toyota was helping sponsor a lot of stuff right. which at the other the other regional areas they would leave it to the uh regional uh dealer group Right. Make up your mind. Value. I mean, here, right? Yeah. Right. Toyota sponsors the Lakers. Toyota mm-hmm. sponsors the Angels. Right. Whatever yeah, it is. Local yeah. money. But that's Southern California Toyota Dealers Association, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's not. Uh, yeah. Toyota Motor Sales USA. Right. Here, they were substantial participants mm-hmm. in that thing. So, as a consequence of that, once that announcement was made, you could sort of see the handwriting on the wall. They got to the fortieth. They got to the thirty-ninth year of the celebrity race, which started back in. 77, 78, we first started that, and they took it over. Mm-hmm. And then they said, we're, you know, it, it was another one of those kind of things where everybody was participating in it until we got to the recession. Mm-hmm. Right after the recession, they, like everybody else, went through all the books and went, yeah, yeah. Is, what are we doing? Does, here? Any, does anybody? Because they were <laughs> those guys were really astute. Yeah, right. They, you know, motorsports had a chunk, PR had a chunk, branding had a chunk. They were all contributing to it. Mm-hmm. And then somebody said, "What if we add all these chunks together?" And then they went, "Holy smokes, it's <laughs> expensive." Right. It was expensive. Yeah. yeah. We didn't. We quite frankly didn't realize how expensive it was until they came to us and said, "Guys." If we want to continue doing this, we need some help from you. Right. And when you start adding up all of the various aspects of that, <laughs> flights, hotel rooms, uh, what you need to do in terms of training, mm-hmm. the cars, mm-hmm. the maintenance. Yeah. And then and then you get to race weekend and you got all the hospitality mm-hmm. and you got to get all the and you got everybody's got agents and <laughs> people. And the reason you have to take care of them is the agent says to you to to, to his uh, 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 the star, he says, so tell me again, you want to go do a celebrity race, right? This Toyota celebrity race thing? Yeah, okay. And it takes ten day a 10-day commitment. <laughs> what okay. are we getting for that? Yeah. And you're getting how much? Yeah, yeah. And if you tell me it's zero, yeah. then my percentage of that is yeah. the same number. That's 10 days you could be making money for both of us. You got yeah. it. You yeah. got it. And you're going to... and. and more importantly, you're going to turn down this gig that I got for you <laughs> yeah, to go yeah. race a car in yeah. the streets. Yeah. Tell yeah. me how that's going to work right, out. Break okay. your neck and now I'm out of a job. Yeah. 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 <laughs> or Donny Osmond going upside down in turn one. That famous Hero. picture, you know. Hero. You know. Yeah. And we, and we yeah. actually had a couple people come down who, who were 
I can't remember his name right now, but they practiced on Friday and they actually sat on the pole mm-hmm. for the Toyota Pro Celebrity Race and we announced it in the press room and not a half hour after that, the head of the studio that he was... Wasn't uh, that the lead in True Blood? Yeah. ...said, no, I don't think so. Oh, I thought it was the same story. But, anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. But he called up and he said, it's not happening. Yeah. Not happening. Yeah. They pulled him. They pulled him on a Friday night. They literally just didn't know he was running. They, they obviously, somebody up there hadn't told yeah. them. And all of a sudden it was like, our star is going to be in that. And it, there hadn't <laughs> been any incidents or anything. Right, but that's But to him, yeah, non-racing guy, racing, mm-hmm. race cars, yeah. my star, get yeah. out of here. Yeah. Not going to happen. Having him. Was that so, Adrian Brody or did he? No, Adrian Brody he, actually he ran. He, ran. he, ran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he did. He did yeah. pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But like you know, yeah. Patrick there, there, get started there. And yeah. stuff like that. So, there are a number of guys that came out of that. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, came out of that series that got the racing bug. The bug. Yeah, and Frankie Munoz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you realized that it was an expensive racing bug. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talent matters. I want to yeah. start my team. I want to do this. Yeah. yeah, just the whole life. I want to do that. Musician too. You know? Yeah, band. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, so that you know, so in in nineteen, I mean in twenty eighteen, yeah, that was the end of the end of the relationship, and yeah. they had by then they had transitioned to to Plano, mm-hmm. and 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 God bless them, they were great partners. I got absolutely they, nothing I mean, negative to say about them. How many all, you know? other brands can you think of that are a title sponsor to an event that that's that big and expensive for that long? There, there's that's, none. That's impressive. There's none. That's like one of the longest. We did the research on that, yeah. and that was the longest running title sponsor of a of a of a singular event in motorsports. Yeah, forty five yeah. years. Yeah, forty four really. Yeah, and forty of those they were the title sponsor. I think no, nobody has. Yeah, that. And, yeah, and it won't happen anymore because nobody has that kind of longevity to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So then the challenge became: Who are you going to replace it with? Right. No, not not an easy thing, quite frankly. Just based on on the heritage that was there that was left from Toyota. And and that was, quite frankly, was one of the things was people said, man, that, that's the Toyota Grand Prix. Right, right. right. Well, that's and they the have Toyota their flow Grand so well known. Yeah, yeah Ooh, exactly. You know what? Uh, that's the Toyota Grand Prix. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're still going to call it the Toyota Grand Prix for how long, you know? Mm. So, so we had to get to the point where we said, time to make a clear yeah. distinction here, yeah. okay? It's going to go to something else. And that's when... I went down to Honda and talked to uh, John, and uh, I actually talked to Honda mm-hmm. originally, and then it, it f- for a variety of reasons up there, and yeah. I'm sure they could explain it a lot better than I can. We but, got a guy. Uh, you know, yeah. it 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 was a good fit for them, and it was quite frankly turned out to be a good fit for us. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, they're young, you know, that whole group very yeah. aggressive, uh, uh, proactive in market, and that's what we were looking for. Because, in all honesty, as much as we love Toyota, when you do anything for, for that 40 long. years, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It, gets it gets to be a little bit commonplace. Diametric opposed to that was John and and, and Greg DeWine and, and uh, that group over there. We're small, but we want to make the, you know, the Acra name, and, and they're doing it. So... Long Beach Grand Prix is closely affiliated with two key names getting it going, Jim McCallion and Chris Pook. And Chris Pook, as we understand, was a travel agent. How did how did you guys even meet? Well, actually, um, Chris had the idea and took it to the city and was in the process of selling them on uh, on the concept. I lived in Long Beach. Yeah. I had graduated from uh, UCLA and with my MBA and was 
had been involved in a couple of companies. Okay. But I lived in Long Beach, and I heard about this guy who intended to start a, a, a motor race, right. street race, and were you in a my race city. Fan? Oh, I was, I've been a fan ever since I heard the sounds of Sebring with Corvettes back in, yeah. you know, right. before you guys were born. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and, and, and never, and it's been a very expensive, yeah. but uh, very fruitful <laughs> yeah. kind of a vocation. Yeah. So there was a, an appearance before the Coastal Commission at the Port of Long Beach office back in 70, early 75. Right. I went to it. And you didn't know Chris at all? I didn't know Chris at all. Okay. But I went there as a proponent, okay? I'm a Long Beach guy, and I'd be very interested in having this happen. I met Chris at the time, and, I, you know, I said, I'm available to, to be involved. I'm, I obviously knew the sport because I've been following it for forever. I went out to Riverside, watched sports car racing out there. I'm sort of a sports car and you're guy. Like, about and you're, like, okay. mid-late 20s at this point? I was uh, early, just at 30. Okay. Okay. So, so when I... When I did, he was just putting together his staff. He didn't really have, he had, you know, he'd been talking to Gurney and to Phil Hill, but we had a PR guy, who was Pete Byro, who's well-known for his, his photography efforts. We had a marketing guy, Brian Turner, and we had an assistant and myself, mm-hmm. and that was about it. Right. And, and then we brought an operations guy, Sonar Oldfield, on. What was your first exchange with Chris? Uh, I introduced myself and said that, you know, I was in Long Beach and I was a big supporter and wanted to see about a way to be involved. So you didn't show up as like the cocky kid with an MBA, like, hey, I'm going to help you run this. You know no, what you need to do. No, no. In fact, okay. at the time, I was interested in being an investor oh. in the enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, So I, I didn't come as a necessary you, as an employee. You I came, came with money. Yeah, I, I had I had a little bit of money. I had okay. a practice so later. you definitely yeah. got well, his attention right. then. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, seats right here at the table. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that was the idea behind it, and I went to work. Uh, actually, my first job uh, was primarily involved in the financial area and the promotional area. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so I came on board like in in, uh, in early in 1975. Right. And did Chris have and, any reputation prior to this, or was he just some random guy that wanted to get this going and somehow knew how to get through the city? Well, he had met some individuals in town here, primarily through his business, and there were a couple of stockbrokers, Jack Queen and Stu Elner, who were instrumental in raising the funds. And then I obviously got introduced to them, and Jim wants to be involved, and so we were involved in the the recruitment of funds for that. Okay, so that's how, that's that was the start. It was a very small utilitarian group that put the first race together and 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 quite frankly to be honest with you and i i think it's part of the record we didn't even get paid for a good nine almost a year yeah sounds like it was a great way to like like any racing venture was a good way to lose yeah i mean it's typical right you know we were all scrambling and seeing what we could do critical question because this is true for any racing venture we know so you you had you've been a lifelong race fan been involved with in different capacities even prior to long beach um, how many of the investment group were, were race fans? Um, about about half of them. Some okay. of them, some of them followed the sport. Uh, some of them were engaged in. Uh, one of them had an auto repair shop. Mm-hmm. And okay. One of them had uh, a, a Lou Mirable sold Jaguars and mm-hmm. Lotus okay. and whatever. So uh, there so was you know he's shady. there were some affiliations there, and okay. others were. Friends of friends that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hey, buddy, come on. Here. Okay. Right. So <laughs> let's, if we go, if we call it 50-50, 50% it's an easy sell. They love racing. They love cars. Yeah. The, Monaco, the Monaco of California yeah. sold. 
we've learned in our assorted <laughs> meals that the key to starting as a driver, as a team owner, as any sort of racing entrepreneur <laughs> is to lie Scam. and just con your way yep. through it. Yep. Was there any gamesmanship for, let's say, the other half of the investment group? Um, there was a... a Look at that pause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a story being told <laughs> about, about the potential for this yep. event. And... <laughs> And it was up to them, you know, to, to see that there was some kind of a future payoff for it. It was easy. I mean, quite frankly, gotcha. it was easy. Quite frankly, yeah. the, the group that we were talking to were pretty, you know, moneyed guys. And to them, right. yeah. the, the minimum investment at that time was $5,000. Oh, that that, was, that marked 20 shares, you know. So <laughs> to them, you know, hey, I'll throw in 5, 10, 15. And, yeah. yeah. And, and I'll tell you, in the when, once we went and issued stock, did all of that, mm -hmm. you know, for years, that stock was declared in their minds and in ours to a certain degree as being valueless. Didn't right, it was, it, was, yeah. it was a penny stock. You know, they, right. okay. yeah. they would give it to their family. Here, take this. It was an right. old investment yeah. I made. Yeah. So don't, was there, you know, some fabrications? It was, it was the Bitcoin of bad you know, investments. Yeah, <laughs> could have been. You know, and at the time, until we went until we went public, and then all of a sudden everybody was running around. Where are my stock certificates? Yeah, right. I, I, I didn't realize they were being worth anything. Yeah, and yeah. My kids right. got them. I, I got to get them back. Kid and, traded it for something called yeah. Apple or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, was there was there an attempt to to fabricate something? Not really, but we embellished the vision. That's yes. called a con. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Pretty sure that's fraud. Um, so, <laughs> not if you not if you deliver. There he is. Not if you deliver. That's why you're still that's here, you're sir. Still here. That's now. why you're Bless still you. here. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did you do before any of this to have some some finances available to invest? Well, I actually I got out of college. I got my MBA from UCLA, and I looked around. In those days, there was something called an MBA program with most major industries. You know, they were always anxious to get young people in. Yeah, right. So I went around and interviewed. I got, you know, some offers from like Procter & Gamble. For like and, junior and, executive kind of programs? Yeah, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. follow around. And I ended up working for Borg Warner. And one oh, of the reasons oh, I worked cool. for Borg Warner was the obvious one, yeah, to right. my mind. Yeah. But the challenge you had with Borg Warner was where it's located. You know where that is, don't you? It, Chicago, Illinois. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. Southern California kid. Yeah. All his life. Yeah. I worked... When I when I went to work for with for Borg Warner, they took me back to Chicago in November. Oh, oh yeah. wow! Great. Hello, yeah. yeah. Hello, Chris. Yeah, you're looking up at the buildings there, and you see the temperature sign minus eight. Here I am, freezing to death. Yeah. So uh, already I'm thinking this mm -mm. ain't going to work too well. Yeah. But fortunately, I went to work for them on some of their local in in Southern California because they had a couple of uh, uh, plants out here, and then then I had to make a decision after right. about a year go back or stay here. So I stayed here. And then I joined up with a buddy of mine, a graduate student, and uh, who was interested in, and we were interested in some entrepreneurship, and mm -hmm. we opened a chain of bookstores. Oh, okay. And did pretty well with them. In those days, bookstores actually meant something. Yeah, I don't know. What, those, what does he mean by this? Yeah. <laughs> and so and then we got an offer. To, somebody wanted to buy them because they wanted to integrate them into a bigger chain. Yeah. So we sold it. So I got a reasonable return off of that. And that's 
you know, it was that at that particular phase of my life when I had, you know, I had a family and whatever, right, right. but we had some money and a little bit, and I wanted to an opportunity. So all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, when somebody came along and said, "Hey, you know what? Here, here's a chance to invest it," but with it comes the opportunity to be involved. So in you a got race. conned. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> but so you were so I, determined yeah. to prove you weren't conned. Now we're still here. I, yeah. No, no, because. My first job was in the financial department. Remember that, okay? Right, yeah, so yeah, it was yeah. pretty hard to con the finance guy. Cut to a clip of Chris well. Pook with a fishing rod. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So Southern California guy, right? Yeah. You grew up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Alhambra, California. Oh. I went to Alhambra. Alhambra. Guess where our offices are. Where? Atlantic Boulevard, right there. Are they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah Monterey yeah. Park. We'll yeah, Monterey Park. Monterey. We're literally on the other side of the, the ten. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. that's my old stomach. I went to Alhambra yeah. High School. Too bad. Oh, that's yeah. literally on my way to get to the work. Is that so, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On Main Street, right? Yeah, I'll be like, Jim says, "What's up?" <laughs> um, I used to run these streets. Yeah, and they're like McCallion. He's not from Glendale, um, but uh, Burbank, <laughs> Burbank. Yeah. Now I know that joke. I spent yeah. Now you know the joke. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like that's very specific to people who live in Burbank and Glendale. All right. But so you grew up, you grew up in the, let's call it the Pasadena area, but Southern California guy your whole life. Long Beach in the 1960s and 1970s was maybe not the Hollywood image of what a Southern California beach community looks like. Why there? Why Long Beach? Yeah, why not Newport? Why not Huntington? Venice? All these, like, what are what, what you see in the movies because was not what Long Beach looked like. At, at no, the time. it wasn't. But I wasn't yeah. attracted to, to those venues. I was a, you know, I come from a very middle class family. We didn't have major reside. Three brother, uh, two brothers, and my dad was a civil servant, so we had very limited resources. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I never was uh, uh, induced to go into you know areas where there there was some degree of fame or infamy or anything right and i had relatives that lived in long beach uh my uncle uh was here he had a garage here he was in the garage business so i came down here i I used to come down and and work in his garage on cars Mm -hmm. just as a avocational thing right so and 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 then what happened was to put myself through school i got a job working on the the uh, harbor beltline railroad which serves the port. That mm. sounds like labor, sir. It yeah. was. It was. Yeah. We we hustled all night to get cars, uh, you know, spotted in the t- canneries down there. So I lived in Long Beach because I was working here, and I drove up to UCLA when I completed my uh, my master's degree. So I was here, and I stayed here. And yeah, you know, Long Beach is still a very attractive place for a person like myself and who didn't have huge social aspirations, or whatever. So I enjoyed it here. And then the opportunity came along to get involved, and that just solidified my justification for staying here in, uh, in Long Beach. So you've been here your whole life, and the picture that we've been painted about Long Beach initially is that it was pretty rough. Can you, could you imagine that it would look the way it does today when you were just showing up here for the first time? Not really. I mean, I, you, you can say, yeah, that was our aspirational goals and whatever, but, you know, honestly – how the city has grown. I mean, this is a Navy town. This is a Navy town, okay, with all of the attributes that come with, with a you know, Navy operation down there. What do you mean? And <laughs> I don't have to go into details. I know you know all that stuff. Okay? But our audience does Like work hard, play hard. But I already explained. <laughs> I already explained to you that Ocean Boulevard had flop houses, yeah. uh, uh, X-rated movie theaters, yeah. and assorted other. 
Okay. <laughs> Sorted other. Leave it at that, right? Things so, that sailors would like for a day of leave. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it had the pike in those days, the pike with the big roller different. coaster, yeah. which I think you've seen pictures mm-hmm. of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it, those were the attractions of the city in those times. Would, would it have evolved into something that turns out to be like you see today? You know, the potential was there, but nobody could talk about that at those days with any degree of confidence. But as time moved along, you had some smart leadership here in this town. And as a consequence of that, they had the motivation to direct the city in the direction it, uh, it has gone in now. And you're seeing the result of it. You have your first race here in 75. How many people show up? That's a whole other story. You want a short version or a long version? Let's just start short and then we'll ask questions. All right. Well, okay. we, as you can see, we pick up on little details yeah. that we can okay. explain. So here's, and then here's a detail us. for you. Very good question. <laughs> okay. We set uh, the parameters for where we were going to be for that first race with a guess of how many people would come. We put 40,000 grandstand seats in. 40,000. Pretty good size. Yeah. Right? We ran the race September 28, 1975. This facility was packed with people. Every one of those grandstands were full, and we had general general mission people lining all of Shoreline Drive and up in front of the uh, on Ocean Boulevard. Must have been at least 60 to 62,000 people here. Your first okay. race. First race. What a success. Yeah. Wow. I remember we went up and saw the city officials, some of them who had been very skeptical about, you know, is this thing going to work? Right. And they were up on the hospitality village up on the bluff, looking down, seeing this mass congregation of people here. Right. I did too. I went down to the box office, which was in the arena. And there was a gentleman down there named Stan Mack. I walked in. He was a ticket manager. I walked in and I said, Stan, can you imagine how we attracted all of these people to this event. He didn't even acknowledge me. He was sitting there with one of those old-fashioned calculators, you mm-hmm. know, the kind with the handle. Mm-hmm. And he just kept pump, looking at these little scripts of paper yeah. and pulling the handle. Yeah. Yep. yeah, That's what he did. And then he turned around to me and he said, young man, which in those days I guess I qualified as, <laughs> he tore that little piece of paper off that adding machine and he handed it to me and he said, I don't know how many people you saw out there, but this is the number of people that paid. And I looked oh. at that, and I, it was 37,909. That number is embossed in my brain forever. 37,909. <laughs> and now, <laughs> and now, we're going to have to go out and explain to all of the various constituents, wow. the press, yeah. the city officials, our investors, and the fans, right? What happened? So the con was <laughs> what the happened? fans. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. And you know what happened? What happened was we oh, were so yeah. rushed to get this thing done yeah. that yeah. we you didn't think about fences. You know, <laughs> thought, well, we'll just put a fence there. If you just system. put a fence, yeah, that'll keep people out, right? right. So you yeah. definitely were a thirty-year-old with an MBA. Yeah, right. Like, oh, people will just behave. Yeah, yeah. Well, I right. went to UCLA the where every closed. <laughs> no one's going to try to open it. It's closed. If there's one thing I know about UCLA people, it's that they're grounded in reality. Well, you must have been there a different era than when I was there. I tell you, that's for sure. But that's that's a true story. And and that's amazing. And we and and there's a there's a headline in the press telegram of the day ne- the next day saying sixty two thousand people attend event, which they've kept one third of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. half loss, half of them. Pay. And that was a, that was a hard thing for us to try. To, you know, so what happened to right. the money? 
I mean, there were yeah. a few people thought yeah, that we discounted exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Out of here, right? You know. Yeah. So, true story. That's what happened. I don't know the political culture of Long Beach in the 1970s. I'm sure some of the issues in the 70s are different than they are today. But politics are politics. You're going to have somebody who will see a racing opportunity as something as a positive, And then there's always an opportunity to grandstand and posture and say, I'm against this. Mm-hmm. I have to think in the 1970s, it was no different. What were some of the obstacles you guys really faced from a, just a permitting standpoint? Well, the, the, the big concern was specifically the council people who represented the downtown area. Right. Okay. Was this more posturing or genuine concern? Well, I think to, to a certain degree, don't forget, there was a very old populace down here very old so a lot of the reaction to it was how do i get around how do i go to church on sunday i can't go over the bridge how do i facilitate getting my friends and activities associated with the event into the place and they reacted to it you know and and given the first time event that had ever taken place so there's no historical reference there's no legacy there's nothing it's very easy to be, uh, you know, skeptical about, you know, so why is this going to be a success? Yeah. yeah. You know, nobody's ever done it. Why, you know, why would that be the, the opportunity for somebody to come along and do that in our city? Right. Mm-hmm. The counter to that was we need something like this because, as I, you know, it, it, there have been so many other attempts and they had all basically turned out to be failures. Right. So here's a chance for us to redeem right. ourselves in terms of being able to produce an event that city can be proud of. Because Long Beach had had other attempts at world-class events that yes. maybe hadn't been as successful as had, Miss Universe. And, right, they had Miss Universe contest, they had the Queen Mary, which mm-hmm. even at that time was uh, indicating that it was going to take a number of... Uh, Cut two. Yeah, financial, <laughs> years later. financial yeah. infusions yeah. to get news. the thing. Yeah. Yeah. 2021. Exactly. Yep. And to this day, I go to events, and every once in a while, and there's not many left, but I hear people say, you know, I was at the very first race. You know what's the first question I ask them? Did you pay? Did you pay to yeah, exactly? <laughs> Did you pay to get in here or not? <laughs> you can't let it go. <laughs> nope. It's been so long. So throughout this 1970s, 1980s history of Long Beach, as the city develops, it's still a naval shipyard town, and the majority of businesses are built around it. In the 1990s, not just Long Beach, but across America, there was a string of military closures, bases, shipyards everywhere, and Long Beach was one of them. What was the picture painted for you guys as that starts to happen? Well, at the time, uh, the mayor was uh, Beverly O'Neill, and very fortunately for the city, uh, she was very astute in terms of the relationships she had either created or was going to create that afforded the city the opportunity to transition from being a Navy town, which it primarily was, although... Keep in mind, at the same time, you had McDonnell Douglas, major aircraft manufacturer up in the in, in the middle of town, uh, not insignificant in terms of employment and uh, and and functioning as a major uh, uh, business uh, partner to the city in those days. So this wasn't strictly a Navy town. I, I think that misnomers out there, and a lot of people say that, but it it did contribute. But simultaneous to that, the port was beginning to really grow as a, as a vital component. So you had other uh, economic factors in play. So, but losing the, the, the naval presence and doing it fairly quickly, I mean, it, was, it didn't uh, extend out for a number of years, was a major financial blow to the city. But the mayor was very astute in terms of cultivating relationships, both in Washington, some in Sacramento, but more important in Washington, 
that afforded the city the opportunity to transition from being a navy town to being more economically driven by you know other endeavors that uh, that were equally important or in some cases more important so during the 90s a lot of things popped up here it was kind of like a complete you know reinvention of the, of the city so the course has changed quite a bit over time because of that is that a problem when a new building gets popped up or proposed well the course has had a number of uh, iterations to it uh, actually some major some minor there's been about eight of them yeah since we had the original construction that included ocean boulevard and shoreline drive but in 2000 which was sort of the culmination of some of these activities you're, that uh, were, you were referencing in the term of the 90s, when the aquarium was built, when the pike was starting to get developed, and when all of the uh, activity on the south side of shoreline, we had to make a major decision with regard to rerouting the course. So we did that. We did that with the idea that there was going to be subsequent development in and around some of the areas on the west side so we put the course in a position where that development could take place and we wouldn't need to change the actual circuit itself from that point on because there are some challenges every time you make a course change, if it's substantial, if it's minor moving a certain uh, runoff area back or something like that, it's not a big deal. But in 2000, we made a major change. Instead of going down Shoreline Drive and making a right-hander and coming through the parking lot and coming back on Seaside, we now turned left and went in front of the aquarium, came double back down on Shoreline and went up Pine Avenue. So that was a that was a big change. And it was accompanied by some of the conversations we had with those developments, whether it was aquarium, whether it was restaurants, whether it was a pike, in terms of how we were going to be able to conduct the race and yet facilitate what their intentions were in terms of uh, their operation of their various facilities. Yeah. Now, you have a responsibility to create a cool event, and obviously that is navigating the city, but... You're a racer, and you also understand having to put on a good race. And you can't expect everybody in the city to understand what a good race layout is. When somebody says, like, oh, just make this left over here and make this right over here, you may look at that as a racer and go, ooh, we just lost a passing zone. Or, you know, now it's going to be a procession if we do this. Mm -hmm. Does that become a real fear? Oh, let me tell you something. Th th that, that point is very cogent here because, for example— when we went down and first began to take a look at going down Shoreline Drive and making a left-hander in onto Aquarium Way, one of the challenges you have is you're you're, you're by necessity you're you're uh, confined to whatever the parameters are, yeah. width of the street, where you're transitioning, is it concrete to asphalt or vice versa. So those are things you got to take in mind. So when we first went down there and I went down and took a look at Turn One, they were just constructing the final configuration for turn one. And we went back to them and we said, turn one's 30 feet. It won't work because Ooh, you're coming yeah. off Shoreline Drive, which is three Huge. lanes wide yeah. into a confined space. Right. That is yeah. potential. This race might have Olivier Beretta. <laughs> Your race is going to end in turn one is what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay. So we were fortunate. We went to them and before you guys complete anything here, put a right turn lane in and give us – 40 almost 45 oh, so they feet. literally were going to cut it off at the like left hand or left side of the road with the yeah. yellow lanes yeah. and not the two-lane road that it is now in right. turn one exactly and so, you as a racer went oh god that's that, a bad idea because you've been funneling everybody well you know what yeah, it's like absolutely. Right? you know bottleneck right up the first guy yeah. in the other guy's going to get shoved in the tire yep. pair yep. and, and it's yep. going to happen and now your race stops bingo yep. pretty soon you get a reputation for 
what's going to happen down in turn one, yeah. start of the race. Yeah, it's going to funnel everything. Okay, together. so yeah. that was a that that that's an example of where being cognizant of those kind of idiosyncrasies helped us because if we had tried to go down and do that after that street had been completed, it would cost us. Uh, they they told us that it was going to cost somewhere around three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Jesus Christ! Yeah. And we got it done. <laughs> We got it done basically because they needed, you need a right hand turn lane. You right, really right. do. Yeah. <laughs> we go for that. I okay. didn't tell them why. I just told them they needed one. Right, right, so right. It would right. really be good that. for everybody getting a yeah. Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about just, just, some, just some quick facts and figures on the operational side because we don't have a ton of cover. Or we have a lot of footage. We don't necessarily have a lot of people talking about how it actually mm-hmm. You could get Dwight to come and talk to you? Mm. One of the reasons we wanted to do this is that we just don't know how this event happens. It's not a permanent course like Laguna Seca up the road or, or Fontana. You know, you have to rebuild this every year. Um, what is your agreement with the city just in terms of how long you can be shut down? So currently our agreement is that we have a stipulated time to set up and to tear down. It's 53 days to the start of the race and 21 days afterwards mm-hmm. that's always a topic of discussion when we go back for renewals year, sure. yeah right cut right. this down cut that down mm-hmm. and that's, that's 53 days for walls fencing every, jumbotron yeah. electronics whole thing yeah. all all of the physical uh, elements that are necessary to conduct this race have to be in place right with between 53 days because their insurance guy is going to walk around on thursday or race weekend mm-hmm. he's either going to sign off on the course or he isn't right okay so that is the pivotal point and so there is no uh, there cannot be any reason for a delay or right. encountering any. What if it rains for a week? Though? You can put it off, right? Well, yeah, right, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. 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 Don't worry about uh, it. Unfortunately, they'll be racing in Barber that week, that next week, so right. that won't yeah. work for yeah. us. You know? Yep. Yeah. Right. So that that's the criteria that the city and we have agreed upon in terms of the setup and the teardown right. portion of the of the uh, race. Event. Right. How many streets are uh, compromised by the course layout? Well, ironically enough, but uh, during the time frame that we're set up, uh, the, the streets are basically open right. until yeah. we get to Wednesday of race week, and then we cut them, we, we close them down in some sequence, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, in the morning you close them down one way, in the afternoon you close them down the other way. So 24 hours after the race is over, the streets are open. So from a physical uh, standpoint, uh, the impact is, is really very limited. Granted, you got to put grandstands up. You have to put up bridges. You have to put up all of the circuit modifications that are necessary: block, fence, cable, everything else. And that can that takes time to do. Uh, but once you get to the point where you have all of that stuff aggregated together, um, it's much simpler to take it down uh, than, than than to put it up. Literally half half or less than the amount of time. So we're about five weeks out right now from the race. The track is half built already. We've been following it this whole time. But it's literally not until days before the race that you actually completely close it off. And there's a reason for that. One of the things that we have agreed to do is to hold off on installing some of the circuit systems in front of the in front of very specific areas. The aquarium, the restaurants that sit down at the end of Shoreline Drive, the pike itself, all with the idea that by, when you put a when you put up concrete block and then you put up concrete, uh, I mean, then you put fence on top of the concrete, cable, grandstand, it does obliterate the view of the restaurants. Right. Oh, I see. Of the aquarium. Plus, okay. people can't drive in now. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. Exactly. So we tend to hold off on that. So a lot of that work is completed on a very tight time frame just because we've agreed that we wouldn't go in there and put that construction in place during that, uh, you know, earlier than that time. Right. So you have 53 days to build up the track. The consequences are obvious if for some reason there's a construction delay and the track's not ready in time. We understand that. Yeah, we understand that. Right. What are so you 21 day cleanup? What are the consequences if it goes into day 22 for whatever reason? Well, we never have faced those consequences. Mm-hmm. Okay. We would we we have a provision that says if there are contingencies that we would have uh, a more time to get the, the work completed. So if something completed. crazy happens, right? Yeah, right. right. No, but, 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 but you know, well, look. One of the things that's important here is to understand that this really is a partnership between the host city and the event. Mm-hmm. If that partnership isn't there then there's going to be substantial problems that are going to arise on a continuing basis that could well be, you know, very deleterious to the, uh, to the event itself. Okay. But if you do have a relationship then and people say, okay, we understand some of the contingency that arises, we will try to do what we can to accommodate and vice versa. Okay. I don't know. One of the things that you might not have been advised that, you know, our, our operations department is involved in a number of other activities other than what we do here at the Grand Prix. For example, just this weekend, we built the facility out here in Manhattan Beach where the AVP is playing their uh, their volleyball tournament. We built all those structures, grandstands, staging, all that. Okay, one of the things we've done here in this town is we've contributed often to activities that take place here. This weekend, there's a trust that we put up for nothing right? so that a councilman up in the 9th District can hold a jazz festival. Okay. Those are the kind of the the the, the uh, quid pro quos that go on yeah. with between an event and the host city. And as long as the goodwill is there, right, then there's an opportunity. Should some uh, emergency arise, mm-hmm. there would you know hopefully be an understanding that uh, you know we're going to do the best we can under the circumstances. If we're just late because we're late, right, then that requires some kind of a justification. And fortunately, we've never been in that position before. Like the grand. St- <clears throat> The grandstands, I'm assuming the hospitality locations, anything that's being built for, you know, fans to stand on or, or be sheltered by have to be OSHA certified, I'm assuming? They have to pass the, uh, not only really that, but they have to pass the inspection of the city inspector. Yeah. Okay. Who who looks at it from a, an engineering and a safety standpoint. Yeah. So then adding in all the different forms and approvals and you know, anything that it requires to be able to run an event like this from insurance and liability, et cetera, the amount of paperwork alone to do something like this has to be just tremendous. It it is. But once you've done it and you have a certain routine established and you've got uh, plans that have been approved by the engineers and signed off by the city and keep in mind that we own virtually all of those assets. Mm -hmm. Okay. Grandstands, suite materials, bridges, concrete, all of that. So it's all under our domain. Yeah. So we understand if there were to be any changes at all, we would immediately uh, notify the responsible parties. But where there isn't, there's a continuity there. Yeah. It's not like we're depending on a third party mm-hmm. who well could have changed the design or the, the product itself, right. which, co- which could cause us problems. Yeah. So is that common for people that put on events like this especially in motorsports to own all the assets like fencing materials and building blocks and grandstands what's common is to own the circuit safety system okay because it's unique yeah nobody's going to come in and give you 2,000 cement blocks 
that have a flat edge because uh -huh. there's only one use for it. Right. That's the use for, for a motor racing event. Where it could differ would be grandstands, which there's a, there's a huge rental business mm -hmm. for grandstands, so mm -hmm. you don't have to buy those if yeah. you don't want to. Bridges can actually be fabricated on a rental basis, mm -hmm. so they're available. Uh, suites material is really, a lot of what constitutes a suite really is the same construct that's involved with the grandstands mm -hmm. because it's the base that you build off of. Yeah. Uh, so those are all variables. Mm -hmm. And in our case, we acquired <clears throat> those items as time went along, and now we have a complete uh, dossier of all of those uh, of all of those uh, circuit constructs. So we've learned that not only do you have full-time staff, you have a ton of volunteers, but just nuts and bolts, how many full-time staff do you have working on the Grand Prix? 16, and then including how, operations. How many volunteers do you have approximately? During the weekend, we'll have up to 1,500 volunteers. Jesus <laughs> Christ. That you got a great business. Now, that includes, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the stewards that operate the event yeah. in this case the cow club they yeah. bring 350 400 people here you know and we have uh, a variety of uh, we have committee 300 group we have race management group so there's a and then we have those who are engaged in uh, with some of our sub vendors uh, in activities for them so uh, that number starts to mount fairly uh, fairly quickly mm. when you get into exactly how many people some people work all three days some people work one day, two days, three days. So, yeah. uh, but I think what's equally su significant is the fact that a lot of these people actually schedule their vacation days and their activities based around when the Grand Prix is going to be scheduled for the scope of the year. So that brings up the whole matter of date equity and why date equity, in my mind, is so important because you need to establish in, 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 in other people's uh, schedules when your event is and what they need to do to be able to come and participate. And that's one thing you lose if your date bounces all over the place and they don't have an, a, a unique identifying right. time frame. So some of your volunteers actually commit their vacation time to come be a part of this event where they're working. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. That actually happens. That's and a hell of a shirt. They, <laughs> yeah. they, and they yeah. find a way to justify that. By yelling at okay. the racers. Uh, yeah. 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 It's like today's the day. I they yell at you? Scott Dixon to shut the fuck. What? No. They, no. they never no. yell at you. No. You didn't give them a reason to. No, I mean, I just keep my mouth shut because I, I know you'll find me. <laughs> <laughs> I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. I'm very trackable. <laughs> I know generally people are, are avoiding of attendance figures, but what is the largest attendance you've ever had here? Here? Yeah. Uh, in excess of 200,000. And we, okay, that's a big number. And we and we run and lately yeah. the last few years we've been running in the one eighty one hundred and eighty to one hundred eighty five. Last twenty nineteen we had one hundred eighty seven thousand people there. Yeah. Three days. Three days. That's that that's the reason I wanted to come do this story because Sean's been coming to this race for his whole life. Yeah. And the first time I came was to race in World Challenge in twenty fifteen. And the thing I was blown away by was the amount of people. Mm. I was like, this is the most people that have ever seen me drive a race car. This is incredible. Yeah. And Sean literally was there, and he's like, oh, this is a good turnout. Good turn. yeah. But that's yeah. that's Long Beach. I was like, this is incredible. But your paddock was located inside the convention yeah. center, yeah. all right? Yeah. So when you looked around in the convention center, when you could hear IndyCars mm -hmm. outside, mm -hmm. uh, ALMS, and then on to IMSA, outside, mm -hmm. racing activity, and you looked around – 10, 15,000 people inside the convention center. Yeah. And you asked yourself, 
why are those people in here if they paid all that money to be watching races? And you know what? To them, they wanted to be in an air-conditioned environment <laughs> yeah. in the convention center yeah. with their kids driving a simulator, yeah. and it didn't matter to them who was outside. Right. And you know what? Yeah. God bless them. Yeah. Well, okay. Absolutely. And it does God feel like them. a car show, too, in yeah, that sense. Like, people so. pay to go to car shows, it's, and there's a lot of stuff yeah, on this Yeah. It, the thing I'm taking away from this entire adventure on our side is that it's not as much of a race as it is an event and a party. It's an entertainment weekend. Yeah. That's what we do. We put on a, an entertainment vehicle here. Happens to feature six races, but if you're not a race fan, you can still come out, have a great time. Uh, you know, your your family will all find something that you that you that's enjoyable. And at the end of the day, even if they don't remember who won any of the races, if they give you a thumbs up as they're leaving the facility and say, Jim, had a great time, the odds are we're going to get them back subsequent years. That turns out to be the key. If we don't focus on the idea that entertainment is our business, then then we lose track of what our real function is. And that's the reason why... As a diehard race guy from way back when, I can't let that be the dominating factor in terms of the decision-making process. you got to think along the lines of what do our customers want. They want more of this, less of that, different type of entertainment. Mm-hmm. What do they want? What's going to keep them coming back? And if you're successful with that, you can divorce yourself from, gee, I always wanted to see this or I always wanted to run this. Right. You can't do that for very long because you're playing to one person, to yeah. one audience. Right. You can't do that. Is it crazy that with 200,000 people, they are single-handedly there because of Robbie Gordon? Well, I have, that's what Robbie says. Yeah. I mean, I have yeah. no way to disprove it either. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, just logic and reason. Yeah, right. Science. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> The, okay, so the just the business of how it runs here. So we are sitting in a conference room provided by the Grand Prix Association of Long Beach, the GPALB, right. and you guys are a private company. We're an LLC, which is owned by another LLC, Aquarium Holdings, and that's owned by two individuals, Kevin Kalkoven and Jerry Forsyth, who are 50, 50% partners in terms of the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Do you still... Do you still answer to them say it again do you have to answer to them still uh yeah but they're they're pretty good guys pretty man. Yeah, say, yeah. I, I wasn't spying or anything but there's a letter on the front desk that says jerry Forsyth, and i was like huh. all right yeah, yeah. you know what that there. is you know no, what that is no clue no that's his monthly financials that we send and jerry doesn't do email oh <laughs> we send <laughs> like him. a good efficient businessman right. yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like he's ahead of jerry's time. jerry time right. is money where's my postal yeah. letter where's my, where's my printout <laughs> Jerry's that that's where Jerry is. Yeah. But I, I yeah. give him credit. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. good guys to work for because they sure. they come out to the race. Yeah. Uh, Kevin comes every year. Jerry came the last time. Yeah. And you know, and you're, what you're achieving is is uh, perceptible to everybody that comes to the event. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you you can't create the people. You can't create the environment. They yeah. walk away. Okay. They say, "Hey, this is a good deal," or it isn't. Right. So yeah. you go from there. So um, so. Technically, as the you are the promoters, organizers of operators of the events, um, but it is it is technically an event that is sort of renting the venue from the city of Long Beach. Yes, it is, and to the extent that we provide, we we operate this event on the city domain, okay, through an agreement with the city that provides us with the the opportunity. To conduct this event on city streets and with the public uh, uh, development that's downtown, including the convention center, as a part and parcel of the infrastructure of the event. So technically, 
you guys have this contract with the city. If they wanted to keep the race going, it could be open to somebody else to take from you. No, that's not true. No, okay. I don't know. That's true. No, we have provisions in our agreement whereby we have a singular rights to run this race in this town. Okay, so it is your event. The yeah. only thing that kills it is the event going away. Exactly. Okay. Right. Exactly. Okay. So you do, in fact, run this town. No. You Come say on. that. It's Come not exactly. Just say it. You're like, I run this no. town. No. No, because l- let me tell you the counter-argument to that. Okay. okay. By those who are not exactly great supporters of ours. This race comes into town, provides all the benefits that we talked yeah. about. That yeah. We've talked about $33 million worth of economic impact. $700,000 of direct tax into the coffers of this city. Yeah. 300, the equivalent of 351 full-time jobs. Just the city of Long Beach. It's twice that in the region. All right? But there's some who would say, you know what? That's a three-day event. Right. Okay? Yeah. Three days. Takes up a lot of room and space and time with the 53-day setup. 20 days after. Is that the best use for that property? Yeah. And sometimes that, you know, depending on what they're advocating, that can be a that can be a tough argument. Yeah, right. Because someone can say, if I could get that space with ocean frontage mm-hmm. and I could develop it, I can put those dollars in your pocket, city. Yeah. And you avoid the inconvenience of all the things that come about because we're running the race. Right, right. It's an argument. Yeah. You know? Wow. Now, nobody's come up with something that's an adequate replacement for that. Right. Could that happen in the future? Who knows? Yeah. Look at all the other developments taking place downtown. Yeah. It's Great. Robbie. It's Robbie Gordon. I could do this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's iRacing. Yeah. All right. Uh, so the event does legitimately have detractors. There are yes. people on, on a on a there are people on a political level, there are people on a community level who feel like this event gets in the way. Um, what are the biggest complaints that you face? Well, it's a variety of to the people right downtown, it's the inconvenience. The, In terms the, of their them. driveways are blocked? or No, they're... no, no. It's that there is, you know, the, we talked about construction, the narrowing of the roads, the backing up the traffic, what happens during race time. We've got all these people coming into town, and if they leave litter and trash, and we try to clean up for it. But if you're looking for some excuse to justify your position in opposition to the race, you know, you can find it. You know, you can't put on an event of this magnitude and not incur some inconvenience for some people. There are some merchants that don't benefit from this race, okay? There's a hat guy that's down in Shoreline Village, let's say. His business doesn't work well during race weekend, okay? We're selling hats. We're selling hats to race fans, right? He sells different hats. How many people are wandering down into Shoreline Village when the cars are going zooming down Shoreline? I mean, all of those things are factors that people take into into consideration when they say, what impact does it have on me and my return and my quality of life, et cetera? And the other thing to take into consideration is that you got a lot of new people that have moved into town in the last decade, let's say, to whom the legacy, the contribution, all of the various facets of this event, okay, you run the event, you know, they're less than overly impressed, let's just put it that way. And to them, to a lot of them, it's, they're just neutral. It happens. It's part, of the, it's part of the landscape and get on with it. But you're going to find a few people who say, you know, why are we running a race? And more, you know, and equally important, what is, what is the environmental impact of this race? Which is obviously okay. a, 
a relatively new cultural yes. factor. Never was yeah. never was an issue, but now yeah. you start to hear a little bit about. So, how much? What fuel do you use? Yeah, and yeah. is this carbon plus and yeah. not carbon neutral? Yeah, and, you know, and the irony of the whole thing is. You know, in 16 and 17, we ran Formula E here. Yeah. yeah. We ran a Formula E race here. Yeah. And, no and a lot of those people <laughs> weren't buying tickets. They weren't yeah. excited yeah. about coming right. to a Formula E race either. Yeah. And you're yeah. saying to yourself, how much more, you know, how much more purity <laughs> could you have? What else do you want from right. me? Plus, if you want to see environmental right. impact, walk right. one mile to the 710 freeway. What do you mean? <laughs> hey, there's Teslas out there. Um, uh, so to, uh, with the detractors, whether they're residents or local businesses, how many of them are the proverbial person who moves next to an airport? How many of these people came well, after the, the race had already existed? The vast majority of them. I mean, yeah. been in business for 45 years. Right. right. Keep in mind, I don't know if you heard this before, but uh, back in, in 1975, when we first started here, there were people who were very concerned about the impact of the race on their health. Mm-hmm. Noise, yeah. pollution. Right. right, right. So what we did was we agreed to the city that we would transport those people out of town on race day, Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> Truck them right out of the here. The hater bus? Right. <laughs> so we did it. We took like 400 people out. <laughs> wow. Put them on you buses. You had like a hater bus. Yeah. No, nah, we took them in a, you know, a slew of buses and we took them down and we'd go to various train. Uh, <laughs> attractions and whatever. Really? So we yeah. did that. Yeah. Where did you send them? Well, we took them to Mexico. like we go to a museum or we'd go the to desert. a, you know, no, actually, California. Don't City. say that. Okay. We took we took it to Palm Springs once, and one guy got off the bus and never got back on, and he had to to uh, get a taxi to bring him back ah, there. Right. That's, that's a him. whole other yeah, story. That's on him. I was gonna say, wait, you're bringing him back? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, the bus is all broke down. Wow. So, but yeah. as a result of that, why we had you know this substantial migration out of town and back. <laughs> As the years have gone by, we have retained that philosophy, except it only applies to, to facilities that were built at the time the race started. Oh, so it answers okay. this question about, okay, you yeah. know, I moved in afterwards. So if you're like a grandfathered building, exactly. yeah, you're allowed exactly. to be part of the so hate bus. if you're in the building, you're going to have the opportunity to participate. Do you know where we're at now, 45 years later? We order one 15-person bus. Oh, like a van. And that's more than, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. that's more than enough. We don't even get a bus anymore. Yeah, we just right. get a. Yeah. You know, but you still, do, so you still, we still bus do it. people. And you know why we do it? Here. Why we do it? Because it alleviates any of the pressure from people saying, I can't tolerate this. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. You're in that building over there. Getting a free ride. We're going. Yeah. yeah. And in my yeah. mind, and we've had discussions here from people, the newer people going, why are we spending money? Do it. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Eliminate that whole potential for aggravation. Yeah. And we live with it. Well, it also gives you the opportunity to say, well, we did something. Yeah, exactly. We're not, we're not, we're not turning a blind eye. We're continuing the the, the philosophy they had before. It's just that nobody wants to take advantage of it. Right. And here's an interesting story. When we first started that first year, a lot of the, you know, the residents in the downtown area was very gentrified, you know, very, you know, they they were older people. Mm -hmm. That's why they came here, you know, from Iowa or wherever they came from. There it so, is, Iowa. The Iowa, Iowa by, by the, the sea. sea. That's what it was called. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So they left town. A lot of them left town. Do you know the second year The second year we ran, 1976? The the children and the grandchildren of grandma who had a, 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 a apartment overlooking the course said, Grandma, you can't leave town anymore. And grandma says, 
I'm not leaving town because it's the only time I can get my grandkids and my kids to come down and visit mm-hmm. me. Oh, interesting. Because the race is here. Yeah, right. They yeah, want to come yeah. see Grandma's yeah. house. So all of a yeah. sudden, it was like <laughs> you turn from a negative to right. a positive yeah. Yeah. from all the, you know, the, 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 the grandmas and grandpas right. who were excited about the fact that their family was paying attention to them. Right. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your apartment fronts on yeah. Ocean yeah. Boulevard. Right. Huge you get to Dalton see the race. Fans. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. True story. Yeah. They love fuel mileage. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, um, just a couple, a uh, couple more things, and yeah, then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. Um, March two thousand twenty, track is well underway as far as construction. Tickets are already starting to go out. I assume a large majority of your marketing budget is spent, and this COVID nineteen starts making headlines. And then the city of Long Beach is one of the first cities to really have a, an outbreak, and eventually that hits the city in a hard way what was that month like for you well the actual date was march the 12th that's the date that the governor evoked the shutdown of the state and immediately we had to react to that so we were 70 percent built out 70 percent at that time we had a month to go uh so we stopped we had to talk to our customers what are we going to do Okay, so immediately we communicated with them. Really important. What do you, what's going on? Because never had happened before. Never had happened in our country's time, but never in conjunction with the race. So we crafted up, we communicated, and got to all of them and gave them the option. We offered them a refund or a credit to the 21 race. Okay, and with the credit policy we put in place, what I guaranteed them was not only would the price stay the same for 21 as a credit but we also extend that to 22 which we will so they'll have the same price even though the price pricing will will probably go up for the 22 race so that's where we were at a lot of people took advantage of the credit more wanted a refund but we still had a huge substantial portion of the of our revenue stream that was tied up in credits okay which afforded us the opportunity to exist for the time, the interim time, plus some PPP loans that we went out and got. But now the bill is due. Okay. Yeah. You got to run an event. You have to run an event or you can't get rid of, you know, get those creditors off of your rolls. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So that's why this event here in September is so important. And that's why some of these encumbrances that are coming up now, that to the extent that they threaten that, the, you know, the, the overall success of the event yeah. is, is uh, you know, is, is something that we got to take a good hard look at. And this issue today with regard to the let, yeah, let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. Yeah. It's, it's very good, but let's set this up. So um, so moving into 2021, as it, we felt like things were rounding a corner, you very wisely delayed the race from its normal April date, just knowing that California would probably need a few more months to sort of get things completely in order to make sure you put on a race that was to the standards you wanted to keep. And here we are just a few weeks out and things are still changing. Um, literally, you were a little behind getting here. While we were setting up. Because you're putting out a statement that there's a new mandate here in California and we're just a few weeks out. Right. Right. Keep in mind, keep in mind that we are have committed to following the mandates as dictated by the state and more importantly, since Long Beach has its own health department, what ultimately comes out of the health department. And that's what was the source last night for the uh, health order that stipulated that 
the event here at the Acro Grand Prix Long Beach in September will require proof of vaccination or having had a COVID test that was negative in the last 72 hours. And that just came out today. That's what came out last night, and that's what we have spent a good portion of the day structuring the response and what we're going to do. And it isn't just sending a letter, an email out to our customer. That's part of it, okay? What do you do with social media? Okay, you got to be really careful with that because if you don't get out in front of that, what's going to happen is social media is going to say, well, we don't know what's happening with the Grand Prix and we, we, th- we don't think they're going to have refunds and it looks like some of us are going to get screwed. Do, you know, all of that stuff, you've got to tamp down like now. So we sent that out tonight, today. We sent our social media advisory out tonight. So it would, it would counter any of this, uh, you know, the, the overstatement or misstatement or whatever you want to call it. Of what, of what, yeah, which can happen. And once it rolls, you can't get that stuff back. You can't get it back. So it was a challenge for us to get this date because you had to put all the pieces together. Convention center, availability. City hotels, availability. IMSA, availability. IndyCar, availability. Robbie Gordon, drifting. All of those pieces had to come back together all on the same date, September 26, 2021. We got it all back together, and quite frankly, thought we had, you know, escaped from the yeah. from the really the difficult worst of the time. time. Right. And then the Delta variant came along, and here we are. Right. Know? So we'll see what happens. But we we need to run this event. Now you're not just selling to race fans; you are selling an experience and an event. Yeah. And if people, without getting to, into politics or viewpoints, generally speaking, people either don't want to wear masks or they don't want to have to show up and show a a test result or a vaccination proof or anything like that. Does that compromise your ability to put on an event? It, 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 the way it's set up now, it won't compromise our ability to conduct the event. What it will hopefully is have a minimal impact in terms of the people coming and enjoying themselves. If I got to wear a mask all day in September, you live here. It's hot. September's hot. Okay. People don't think that way. September's hot here. Yep. It's one of the hottest months of the year. Oh, yeah. All day. I'm just thinking, maybe I go, or maybe don't. you got another race in April, right? 2022. Uh, yeah, I got you. It's not too far away. I missed 18 months already. That's the kind of thought process we are trying to alleviate, right? right? If you read the, the, the release that went out, it, we were it, re, it, reiterated, <laughs> yeah. it reiterated the point, you know, fun and excitement and all of the elements are still here. Come on out and have a good time. You know, honestly, wearing a mask, I, I'm not excited about wearing a mask either all day long. But under the circumstances, it really isn't one of those things where you, you have much of a choice. No, you have to do what you are told. Is, yeah. that, is that a challenge, being accountable to something that's kind of out of your control? Say, say it again. You are, you're... You're accountable to your fan base, yeah. but the health department says you have to do this. There's nothing you can do. But that same fan base is experiencing a similar kind of circumstance when they go into Dodger Stadium or going to SoFi. The only difference is, as of now, this event is requiring vaccination proof, whereas that's not required at those other facilities. So there's a that, that's a that's a, a bit of a dichotomy there that we're going to have to, you know, we're, we're going to process explain to people. And who knows, by the time September comes along, maybe that'll be something that other people are going to have to adopt too. We're just, we just got there a little early. And, and that was a little bit irritating to the extent that as long as everybody is experienced, you got to wear a mask now everywhere you go, right? You go in a restaurant, you go in a bar, most places, L.A. County for sure. 
not Orange County, but LA County. So it, it is it uncommon for people to to bring their face masks with them? I don't think so. If you go, that's sort of your paraphernalia, now, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, right. That's part mm-hmm. of the deal. You know. So things are changing so quickly, even right now. I mean, we literally were setting up these lights when you told us about the new, you know, rules put in place for the event. And when I went to go grab dinner, I saw your press release come out, which is after we had said hello to you to set up. <laughs> so it's like really happening right now. Yeah. And we're, you know, six weeks out from the race, roughly. If the race goes off, the fans come out, support the event, and everything kind of goes to where you're hoping. Is Long Beach back? Sure. Absolutely. As long as we meet the expectation levels of our fans, our sponsors, our hospitality clients, with the understanding that they have that these are challenging times and that there are some things they're going to need to do that we are required to do that deviate from the norm. But that that's not an unusual phenomenon right now. It's, it's what we all, we all encounter when we go out and, and engage in the marketplace. Now, can we do things that help to minimize the impact? Absolutely. You know, one of the things, one of the keys is communication. Let people know what they can expect when they come. No surprises. So when you walk up to the gate, you know what's required of you, what we're going to do to help assist you, whether it's sanitation or whether it's mm-hmm. an opportunity for you to engage in some things that, for example, we're going heavily towards doing as much of a cashless operation mm-hmm. as we can. Yeah. We will go all cashless in, in 22. So all of those things are items that people have an mm-hmm. expectation level for because we communicated them before they got here. How long are your terms normally with the city? They usually go five years, in some cases six. We're actually in the process of talking to them right now about extending the contract because we have a couple years left um, through 23, and then we're, we're talking about extending it to 28. So it may be five years, but it probably never ends in the sense that you're always setting up your next five years. Well, it, no, it, it, we, we have gotten into the five-year time frame, but what we have agreed with the city is that there will always be a minimum of two years. We would initiate talks of extension prior to the two-year anniversary so that, you know, if the rare case came along where all of a sudden – we couldn't agree at least we've got two years to go out otherwise what i don't want to do is get in a situation where we get that over to the end and all of a sudden they say you know what whatever yeah whatever right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. what no Listen, we were yeah, done no, yeah, yeah, yeah. now now i got you no need time to, to do good. anything yeah no, i hear that's you. a problem um again we don't have to cover anything you don't want to cover but in 2017 your old business partner chris pook uh put in a bid making a promise to have a similar event that effectively would have taken years away. That can't have felt good. Well, he was in the impression that Formula One wanted to come here. Yeah. The question was, was Formula One desirous of coming here? Yeah. Who answered that? Where, where did, they, was there, did anybody validate that claim? So he said, I can bring F1, and did, no one was like, and my, hey, Jean Tote. <laughs> right. Right, yeah. That was my response to the city. Okay. You have an event, it's very successful. If somebody is uh, indicating that another event, i.e. Formula One, wants to come here, call Formula One. Confirm it. Right. Never did. No. Nobody ever did. And to the the very day we went to the council and we succeeded in retaining the the, uh, position here as a man, nobody, there was no representative Formula One. There was no letter from Formula One. There was nothing indicating that they had an interest. Anything more. I talked to Sean Bratches. Okay. 
John Bratches, you know, the, the, John Bratches was the ESPN, uh, worked for ESPN and then went to work for Formula One as their commercial director. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. John Bratches. I talked to him. I said, did you, afterwards, did you guys ever have any intention to come to Long Beach? He said, none. And I'll tell you why. Because from their perspective, if they're going to run in the United States, they're going to run in the Eastern time zone yeah. or no later than yeah. the Central time zone. Something why? good for Europe. Yeah. Right? yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it, it ruins their whole market. He yeah. said, to us, the West Coast is not a viable market yeah. for that reason alone, let alone all the other concerns. Mm-hmm. And the city of Long Beach was not going to be in a position to afford to help uh, pay for, yeah. Yeah, for right. that, yeah. like Texas does with their $25 million yeah. a year allocation. Yeah. So, the, yes, we went through a lot of effort. We spent a lot of money just preparing documentation mm-hmm. and getting people involved. But in the end, there was nothing of substance there. Right. Nothing of substance. You have a relationship with Chris Pook that goes back almost 50 years. Did this strain it at all? Well, it, it certainly wasn't advantageous, but he, we, you know, he comes to the race. He gets sweet passes, and he's here, um, and that's his prerogative. I mean, I, you know, would we have preferred that it didn't happen? Sure, but it did, and in the end, the the decision was in our minds, obviously, the correct one, and we've gone on from then. You know, so it's a a dim memory in the past. This race first started in in 1975 with Formula 5000. You joined as a kid with a little bit of cash and an ability to con half your investors. That's your description. (laughs) You didn't say no. Not mine. You didn't say no. Not mine. We didn't con anybody. We enticed people to come in and participate in what had a very promising future mm-hmm. at that time. Right. Look at that right. grin. How about that? Look at that. How about that? How about that? Come at me now. Yeah. Um, it's still here. Yeah. Will it still be here when some new podcast shows up in 30 years? With whatever the next. With whatever streaming becomes. It's a good question because is the sport going to be here? <laughs> okay. That's Think the about it. Right there. Yeah. Think about it. Where is the sport headed? <laughs> With all of the technological changes, with all the environmental issues that are arising now, mm-hmm. is can the support survive that? Support PR middle management. Yeah. You know, is is the cacophony of sound and all that visceral effect that you get from cars now? Yeah. If that goes away, does it still attract people? Do we see? Do we consider Formula E a success now? Mercedes apparently doesn't. Yeah, right. And and, and Audi, Audi, yeah. Audi and yeah. Porsche. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. No, and and, and, and believe me, I I got nothing against Formula. They were, they were good guys to work with, yeah. but for, for our so generation, that's a challenge. <laughs> but think about the other. Think about it in reverse. You got twenty year and thirty year old guys to whom noise, sound, reverberations, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not a good thing. Maybe it isn't. Maybe they'd rather have quiet. All right, and if they do, and then you come along with electric vehicles and electric uh, racing series and all that stuff, maybe that has appeal to them because what's going to happen could happen is that racing sounds could become something that's a negative in people's minds. Mm-hmm. It's an environmental uh, 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 element that people don't want to engage in. Could happen, and who knows? We're racers. The Long Beach Grand Prix and the city of Long Beach does are one in the same. Is there a Long Beach without Long Beach Grand Prix? Yes. 
You're the most negative. <laughs> like everyone else has been like, they're all joined no, in. No, of course the not. The future is bright. Yeah. And the guy in charge is like, I don't no. know. Yeah, no. Could the city survive? Could the city survive without us? here before, it'll be here after. Could the city survive without us? I'm in charge. Either way, I don't sure. care. I have a Corvette. <laughs> it's like anything else, you know? Could you, could you make it work? You know, would it be the same? That's not the question you ask. Right. Yeah. You know, is would the city survive without it? Sure. They would. <laughs> Do you want to now? You do, are do, not do you now want to change that to be like without us, <laughs> nothing would be here, and then we'll edit it. I'm not going. I'm not going to go there. That's okay. That's okay, That's guys. If you could describe Long Beach in one word, what would it be? I would say Long Beach is inviting. Meow. Yeah.